This week on Emerge Mobile First, a conversation with Billy Collins, Chief Marketing Officer at Soapbox Soaps. I was a pitcher and pitched a little bit in college, and so it was like, what's the strategy of how you approach pitching and how you approach an at-bat? And so I realized these are things that are really at the heart of business and then ultimately at the heart of marketing because it's about understanding what makes people tick. Welcome to Mobile First. You'll find bonus tools, expanded information, and key takeaways on our website, EmergeMobileFirst.com. For a quick and effective way to level up your mobile strategy, again, that's EmergeMobileFirst.com. Billy has spent over seven years leading global personal care brands such as Avino, Listerine, and Luberderm with Johnson Johnson, just to name a few. All this before joining Soapbox to build the for-purpose brand into a household name by telling the brand's great story, leveraging new media tactics. So Billy, thank you for joining us. I'm really excited to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So what I like to do first is just dig into your origin story to understand a little bit about who you are to provide some context for what we're about to talk about today. So first of all, what are you most passionate about in your profession? You know, part of my journey in my career, I started in financial services coming out of uh, Duke undergrad. And ultimately, I didn't like the question I was answering in sort of the financial services world about making someone more money. And when I picked up the Wall Street Journal, I wasn't reading about what happened in the you know oil market the night before in Asia. I was picking up the marketplace and thinking about how consumers behave and how brands position themselves and communicate to them to sort of change that behavior or adapt to that behavior or create new products that match with changes in behavior. So why someone walks down the aisle at a Walmart and picks up product A over product B fascinated me. And so that ability to really meet someone and solve a problem for them, but also change their behavior is a pretty powerful thing. And I think we as people are pretty fascinating. Humans are fascinating. And so it's a little bit of that sociology plus the communication and sort of behavior change that is really at the core of marketing. It's about changing someone's habits to a more productive way, a more beneficial way, and ultimately sort of grow in the business. Mm, That is really cool. And so how did you come to be passionate about that? Was it when you just picked up the paper one day, you saw that? Or what was it about your childhood or your upbringing that really sparked that in you? So, you know, I think that I was naive about the business world. My father was a doctor and and my mom had to deal with me all the time. And so I didn't know much about the business world. And coming out of undergrad, everyone at Duke went to either consulting or investment banking. And I didn't want to do either of those two things. And so I took a job in HR because I liked people, quote unquote. I liked communication. I liked interacting, motivation, leadership, sort of all those soft skills stuff. So I took a job in HR thinking that would be what I wanted to do. And what I realized from that was what I enjoyed is, again, a little bit more of that sociology and what makes people work. I played a lot of sports growing up and played golf, played baseball, played soccer, played basketball. And I really loved the team sports better than any other than like the individual sport like golf because of that ability to pick someone up and encourage someone and that ability to pull your own weight and understand your role and how did you fit in sort of that bigger equation of things. And so let alone, I was a pitcher and pitched a little bit in college. And so it was like, what's the strategy of how you approach 
pitching and how you approach an at bat. And so I realized these are things that are really at the heart of business and then ultimately at the heart of marketing because it's about understanding what makes people tick, right? And so I think those are the things that as I had spent about eight years working in, I worked at Capital One, I worked at a hedge fund and doing a bunch of operational and sort of HR related activities and realized that if I was going to progress in that industry, I was ultimately going to have to be the quant jock that figures out how to, you know, game the system and make more money for my consumer or whatever. And that wasn't interesting to me. What did interest me is why was someone signing up with, for a certain credit card? Why was someone signing up to trust someone in our hedge fund? And then taking a step back, CPG is the world where, as I started to think about going back to business school and determining what I would do there, it was this mix of CPG marketing is sort of the purest form, I think, in a lot of ways in that commodity type of product, whether it's food, whether it's personal care, whether it's OTC, the products are very similar. And so you're pulling at something in the psychology, whether it's heritage, whether it's a good feeling, whether it's a new new way of talking about something to actually change someone's behavior that they do every day and that they're on like zombie mode, walking down an aisle to pick up Frosted Flakes again, and you decide to get them to buy something else. Putting that together was like, all right, this is what I want to do, let alone the added element of making decisions within a P&L and understanding how to make profitable decisions about how you invest your dollars in a way that grow the top line profitably. That combination I thought was, was really cool. And then I think the last component is, like I mentioned, I'm a played a lot of sports. And so being able to have a scoreboard to know that you're winning, to know that you're growing the business, know that you're growing share in a category, you know, all the CPGs have the same data to be able to see what percentage of people at Walmart are buying a vino versus another product. And can you climb that ladder? So I think those were the things that fueled why I'm so passionate about what I do. Yeah. And I love the connections that you made there with the sports world. I personally, I can relate in a lot of ways. I played basketball, baseball, football and soccer and golf. <laughs> so I, nice. totally, I, I come from that same background and I think it's just something inherent in us baseball guys, right? We are just stats driven and it's just really fascinating how you make those connections. I totally relate. And so as far as then with this perspective, you know, going from that, the financial world, is that where you made your internship with marketing with Johnson and Johnson or, or how did you make that transition? You know, so I went back full time to business school because the reality of most CPGs is they only hire people who either have already been working for them in a different capacity as a manufacturer or people who go back to business school and sort of make that transition. And so to be that career switcher and say, listen, I should need to do what I'm passionate about. The most logical way to do that is to go back to school and find an internship through there. And so interviewed at a number of places and J and J was a great a great fit for me personally in terms of super collaborative type of environment. It's a debatable type of a culture that likes to debate because it respects the opinions of everybody around the table as well as it wants to think out loud, which is sort of how I operate. And then the other two components of J and J were it's a healthcare company. And so I knew I was selling a product that was helping improve someone's life 
which is a pretty powerful thing and was fortunate enough to sort of have some choices. And so to be able to work in a CPG where if people use more Aveeno, if people rinse more with Listerine, those are all things that are good. They're not going to be harmed by doing that. And so that was appealing. And then the, the final thing was sort of a, a, the credo of J&J, which is relatively well known, this idea of having sort of a compass or a value-based that's more than just a piece of paper, but you make decisions based on priority of the consumer first, the communities that you serve second, the employees third, and then the shareholders in result will get a fair return. And so that idea and having people who have that same mindset where they care about making choices that are right and that are drawn to that was the reason why I took the internship at J&J. And, and again, after going back full time, knowing I wanted to do CPG marketing. And so you were there for a while, like almost eight years. Is that right? Yeah. And then it looks like you um, went up through the brand marketing or the brand channel. And then right there at the end for the last couple of years, pivoted to the marketing. Can you maybe talk about some of the growth and pivots and like self-learning that you made along that way? For sure. The very typical path, that first job as an associate brand manager, you're doing a lot of quant and a lot of execution. And what's good about that is it builds that foundation on how things work, whether it's through a retail channel or whether it's through the way you work with your media agencies, whether it's about developing a new product. It's building that foundation of how those things happen, as well as the quantitative backing around both the financial sort of P&L and the return on particular marketing activities and how they are working. And so I started on Clean and Clear. The other great thing about being on Clean and Clear was it was a teen brand. As a 30-year-old dude, I fully got to channel my inner Justin Bieber fan. I read all the read all the Twilight books and went to some high school basketball games to get to know my consumer and all this kind of stuff. So it was very cool. Launched a bunch of products because part of the personal care and beauty space is about bringing new news and bringing new products. And so I spent my first five years at J&J working in the beauty industry. So then worked on Avino, worked on Rock and Lubriderm. And my second role, the title changes a little bit, but it's the same sort of pool of talent. It was a global role, so global global marketing manager. And I was in charge of the whole oral care space, which is why it's not brand, because it was all of the oral care brands at J&J. And so I think you can't work at a place like Johnson & Johnson and not get that global experience. It was obviously really eye-opening to, again, think about why a consumer who is in Iowa, in Berlin, in Rio, and in Shanghai, why are they buying Listerine or why are they not? And so that complex problem was really exciting to try to figure out and be a part of launching some new products and uh, redesigning some packaging on Listerine. So that was part of the reason for the change within J&J. And so you spent eight years in building this, right? And solving these massive, all these big problems at massive scale. And then going from that right to Soapbox, can you maybe talk about that transition? What caused you to want to do that? For sure. About a year ago this time, J&J brought in Gary Vanderchuk, the entrepreneur, to come and talk a little bit about marketing and what he saw as trends in the industry. And he said a couple of things that really resonated, and one of which was a lot of the skills that large CPGs were developing were not consistent with where media consumption is changing. So what still works is a big TV campaign will still work. It still drives sales. 
but in 10 years, it's probably not going to five, 10 years. It's not going to. So I looked at my career and said, in my developing skills that make me attractive in the long term. And I had always sort of had a passion for digital marketing, just a personal interest. Uh, one of the reasons why I love working on Clean and Clear is that at the time, because you could make any excuse and say, well, it's for a teenager and they're all about their whatever, mobile phones, they're all about Instagram, they're about Snapchat. You could do all kinds of cool stuff because you were targeting teens at a company like J&J that is a little more conservative, like I was was saying before in some of their decisions, right? And so Gary was talking about these things. I started to think, okay, where do I want to go with my next step in my career? And I met these guys at Soapbox and the reality of being able to take the skills that I had developed at J&J and the great training that I had received at J&J about consumer, about insight, about how to run a brick and mortar business, and then apply that with a really big impact at a place like Soapbox. And then you layer on top of that, the fact that it's a social mission company, which is not only very much on trend, it's sort of what consumers expect of brands now that they do something more with their profits. And like I mentioned, J&J, one of the reasons why I'm there is because of that, when it was there is because of the value-based component. And so Soapbox had that to another degree in their one-to-one model. And then meeting the um, founders and sort of the leadership of Soapbox uh, they're two 28-year-old guys that started making soap in their dorm room and said that uh, one of them had worked at USAID and did health and hygiene training and said, listen, me personally, his name's Dave. Dave knew that he could not personally raise enough money to make the impact he wanted to make. But if he started a soap company and figured out a way to grow it and did the one-for-one one model, he could have a huge impact. And so we've donated over a million and a half bars now because of the business that he's built. He brought on a a CFO from Unilever, who was also, she's very smart uh, and has a great financial backing. And so I saw this balance of entrepreneur and some experience, as well as the attitude of an entrepreneur where they were self-aware enough and humble enough to know they've done a lot of things well, but they need some guidance and need some ways to help continue to make them improve. And just this idea of, I think the culture at Soapbox is not satisfied and continuing to try to figure out a way to win. And so these two things of my looking for something, as well as my connection into the, to the the guys at Soapbox made it a pretty easy decision. And, and again, it was, it's that right advice that you should never run away from something. You should run to something. I was totally happy at J&J. I could have had another, uh, another 10 years at J&J. It was just the right time for me to take this risk and this leap uh, to join Soapbox and take a little bit of a bet on myself as well as apply the skills that I have to make a difference in the world. If I sell more soap, then I'm making a bigger difference. More, more, more lives are changed because of the impact that I can have with Soapbox. And that's easy motivation every morning. Yeah. And it's really interesting uh, just how that happened. And I'm always just fascinated by the transitions people make and why they make them uh, going back to the sociology and psychology relation. But yeah, it's, it just makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's very uh, purpose driven. Also, just as you were talking, as Gary V inspired you, it's really inspired you for future proofing yourself. And with this position, you have more control and impact pound for pound with this company than you would with like a and J. I remember when I was leaving, I had the opportunity to talk to the, the J&J CMO, Allison Lewis, about leaving. And she said, well, go learn this and then in a couple of years, come back and join us at J&J and teach us some stuff. You know, I mean, I think cool. the reality is that everyone's trying to figure this out, you know, trying to figure out how to use a different model of, of 
sharing a brand story about bringing product awareness to consumers. And so as nobody has the, the, the silver bullet, so to speak, um, and it is about that personal journey of constantly learning. Uh, and so uh, you got to take some big changes like this um, so that you can, like you said, future proof yourself and, and also just learn new things, which is what's interesting. So speaking of brand story and product awareness, uh, can you maybe share a little bit for those of us that don't know about Soapbox Soaps and, and how it got started and, and that backstory? Yeah, for sure. So, so like I mentioned, uh, Dave, our founder, worked for USAID and, and wanted to find a way to start a, uh, a company that would help him make a big impact. And so it's interesting. We often talk about this isn't a business strategy to have a cause. It was actually founded and built on this idea of uh, we can change people's lives through simple purchases. And we don't need to compromise on anything to be able to do that. So we can create a great product. Uh, that it has natural ingredients, that is free from from the chemicals that you shouldn't have, that provide a great experience just like you're used to getting, but then the proceeds of that can have an impact where there are people around the world who've never even seen a bar of soap in their life. Um, and there are people that, uh, simple diseases that can be treated through basic hygiene. And so the other way that we think about one for one a little differently is often these NGOs and these organizations spend a lot of time fundraising. And so instead of doing what they do best, what their core responsibility, which is uh, setting up a, a, a well you know, in a remote village in India, training people to re-sanitize soap from hotels, instead of spending time to do that, they have to go out and raise money. So if we could take that burden off of them, that'll not only freeze them up to make a bigger impact, but it also empowers the people who made a purchase of soap to make a difference uh, in the globe by, again, walking down a, an aisle at Target or Walmart or Rite Aid or wherever and doing what they already would have done, which is buy a, buy a liquid hand soap or buy a, sh a shampoo and conditioner. And so what Dan and Dave is, Dan is the other president and, and COO. Uh, they both went to college together and uh, had worked a couple of different jobs before finally going full-time at Soapbox when they got an opportunity at Whole Foods. They basically, you know, knocked down the door, great entrepreneur spirit of not taking no uh, for an answer. And finally, Whole Foods gave them one store and then that did so well. They gave them nine stores and that did so well. They did a region. They have over the last four or five years built up great distribution of the Soapbox brand such that we are you know, national distribution at Target in, in hair care uh, at 80% of Walmarts in liquid hand soap and body wash, Rite Aids, all these other food distribution, uh, as well as our online presence. And so uh, they've created a great product. And now it's about continuing to find ways to elevate and tell that story and reach more consumers because it is a good product that if someone says, why am I buying another brand of hand soap when I could use this one that it's just as good, if not better experience, and it does something in the world. So that's kind of the backstory of Soapbox. Yeah, and I love that story. So you just mentioned now they're focusing on elevation and telling that story. So getting it out there, creating some uh, awareness online as well. So as now a newer CMO, what are the first things that you're focusing on and coming in? And uh, where are you trying to make the biggest impact? And what's the biggest, biggest hurdle you're, you're facing? Yeah, you know, the first thing and the, the biggest initiative, we've got a rebranding 
uh, the new packaging that will launch in the you know, June, July timeframe. And I think part of what we learned from our current packaging was it wasn't as effective at communicating the efficacy of the product. And we compete in three very different categories. So we compete in hair care, body wash, and liquid hand soap. And so when someone's walking down the aisle to buy a liquid hand soap, they're looking for something very different than what they try to buy in hair care. So hand soap, it's about displayability, looking beautiful on their uh, kitchen counter or their guest, their guest bathroom or their own bathroom. In hair care, it's about the efficacy of the ingredients and the oils and what is it going to help me repair my split ends? Is it going to help me control my frizz? Is it going to help me protect my color, whatever it might be. But if you look at our current designs, they all look very similar. They were built for a Whole Foods uh, environment where the brand was all placed at the same location. Whereas now we're in the mass and drug and food retailers where each of those are separate aisles. So the brands don't live together. And so we had to make each product sort of stand on its own. So we worked with a great design agency called Anthem out of New York. I've had a really positive experience with them where we've we've built on this foundation of what the brand was about. Um, and it's this idea of thoughtfulness. And so you can define thoughtful in a couple different ways. One is about being selective. You're, you're consumed with this idea of, of choosing the right thing. And that's what we think about when we, we do our ingredients and we build our products. And so it's sort of elevating the ingredients inside the bottle because our product works great. We have great reviews. Uh, but our packaging doesn't reflect that. And then the second idea of, of the way we do our one-for-one one differently is we're sort of consumed as sort of this another idea of thoughtful is being absorbed in thought. So we're consumed about doing our mission in the right way. And so how do we, again, sort of communicate that through our packaging? And then the final piece of thoughtfulness is around consideration for others. So like, oh, it wasn't that thoughtful that you did that. Like writing some, someone a thank you note is very thoughtful. And so these elements have always been a part of the brand, but it's our new designs reflect that more effectively than our past packaging does. And so that has served a little bit as our inspiration to um, how we are changing our marketing communication, how we are rebranding our uh, other marketing assets. So website, uh, Instagram, uh, you know, all of our ad communications, those sorts of things are going to take a significant uh, change. Uh, and that was sort of the first initiative. The second piece has been um, figuring out how to market online more effectively. And I think that's where in the past they uh, have done things on a broader scale in a you know one or two time event. So trying to create something big, making a big video that they wanted to figure out a way to get the most impressions through one video. Uh, the approach we're taking now is about creating a lot of different content. Uh, and that content, because our brand does a couple of different things, needs to be served to the right audience. And so there are lots of reasons why someone would be interested in Soapbox. One could be because of the mission piece. So it's about identifying how to clearly tell how we do our one-for-one one well and what their purchase could mean to the impact of someone's lives, to like audiences of Tom Shoes, of Warby Parker, of people who've done charitable donations, of those types of things. And so that communication is is one bucket. The second bucket is um, someone who is a natural consumer who wants to make sure that they are using good ingredients and don't have any chemicals in it. So in that, we're going to elevate a little more the ingredient story, what we include, and then the mission becomes second to that in the same way that it's a kind of the flip of what we do with the folks that are in the mission side, where we hook them in with the mission, but then we also tell them, 
you're not doing charity by buying yourself shampoo. You're going to get a great shampoo and it's going to do the, all the benefits that you want for your hair care. But, oh, by the way, you're also making an impact. For the green consumers, we lead with, again, the ingredient story, what's in our product, those sorts of things. And then another consumer base would be around mothers and sort of changing their household and sort of making these choices that are good for them and also good for their family. So if it's a liquid hand soap that they're putting out in their kitchen sink where their kids have to wash their hands, that sort of thing, it's about finding a product that's great for them that they know also proves as an example for their kid what type of life and impact they want to have on the world, right? And those are just three of the buckets. Who knows where this will take us as we launch this? We're going to able, you know, continue to optimize, continue to learn, which is the awesome thing about digital is that you can say, hey, we actually got the order wrong. We thought that this is the order, but the order is wrong and we're going to switch it up. And that's what's exciting about being as nimble as we can be as a small company, as, as a digital only marketing company. Um, so those are sort of the three big initiatives that, that we've got going on. And so was there already established this robust analytical capability that allowed you to target and segment these users, or is this kind of a newer development? You know, some of this is grounding on the training that I had at J&J and understanding, hey, these analytics are out there. Um, what's interesting is it used to be we'd have an agency who would build the Facebook campaign for us or the Google campaign. At Soapbox, we have less resources, so, you know, I set up the audiences myself and talked to some people mm-hmm. on Facebook and was like, okay, oh, hey, wait, this sort of makes sense. And then tying it back to the strategy of when I started at Soapbox, there was this internal debate of why are people buying our product? Are they buying our product because it's a good product? Or are they buying our product because of the mission? And which is it? And I think what was eye-opening to me is it's different. It's different for different people. So if we can target them, in a way that tells both of those messages. It's not that we don't care. We think both of those reasons are valid to buy our product, but we have to make sure we find the people who care about the mission and tell them one story, which is different than what we might tell the consumer who is a beauty enthusiast, who is always trying out the next new hot ingredient and wanting to find something that smells great in her body wash or what have you. We need to tell them a different message and the mission becomes the tiebreaker at the end versus starting with the mission because they might automatically turn you off. Different than, the again, the mission consumer where it's like, I'm going to hook you in with this idea of you want to make choices in your life that are a good example, that make a difference in the world, that do these things. But don't just be glad that there's a company out there that does this. Realize you're not compromising on anything and you're getting a great product um, as well. So, Billy, there's this one tactic I want to drill in with you here on your site. What's this hope code thing? The hope code is an awesome, uh, awesome component and something that will be part of the uh, rebranding. It's definitely something uh, like I mentioned before, we worked with Anthem on our packaging. And the hope code is something that is on every one of our products where you can type in a specific number and see the, the exact organization where your donation was made. And so it's not, hey, you donated to somebody, you donated to Sundara in India, and here's the impact. Uh, like I mentioned, when working with Anthem, I think they were super excited about working with a brand that gave them sort of carte blanche. We said, we want to keep our brand name, otherwise you can change anything else. And actually, the only other thing we added is we need to keep the hope code, which is a no-brainer, and they wouldn't have wanted to take it away. But when you see the new designs come out in a couple months, you'll see a complete transition, but that hope code will still be there. And so what the hope code is in this era of transparency, um, I don't even think it was 
uh, a question in Dan and Dave's mind that this is something that they wanted to do and be a part of because it's they're so ingrained with that idea of we're building a brand that is an open book. And when you make a purchase, it's not a it's not a marketing tactic. It's a real thing. And so one way to display that is through the hope code. And so what we use the hope code for from a you know, again, from a marketing standpoint is. Um, obviously, it adds that authenticity and transparency. But when doing that, right now you enter in your email, you enter in your name, and, and some other basic information, and we can use that to remarket to you. Uh, we're going to develop the capability that will have sort of a social login and the ability to track your impact over time, as well as track the impact of your social network. Again, that's capability that we're you know about to roll out, but. It connects you to your brand and I think the, the, the consumer to our soapbox brand. And what we've realized about this journey through this redesign is the mission can't necessarily be first because sometimes it feels inauthentic, especially when it comes to packaging. But we want the hope code to be this thing that they discover as they look at the packaging, as they're using the product. And then that's where you get real loyalty. Because consumers use the product and they say, I like it, but I'm probably not that loyal. I might switch. But then when they see the hope code, they're like, well, why wouldn't I buy this again? Because I'm going to get to see the impact I'm going to continue to make. And then how as a marketer can we leverage that tool to, again, re-message to them, provide new offers, talk about new products, talk about the new aid mission that we're doing, the new organization that we're partnering with, whatever it might be. The Hope Code is a really effective tool for us to be able to gather information on that uh, consumer. Yeah, and I think this is actually going to be a really nice transition to mobile just because it being all about contextual data. And I noticed your your site is mobile responses. And so I'm just curious, how has mobile impacted uh, how you're approaching this digital marketing uh, initiatives and, and even Hope Code and kind of where you think you're going to take it? Yeah, for sure. And so I think uh, probably 2011 was supposed to be the year of mobile uh, when I was at JJ. Right? Like everyone's like, you're mobile, you're mobile. And I think finally <laughs> uh, people have stopped saying that, which means that people finally have realized that it's, you can't think of it as it's a different thing. It's all intertwined, right? Right. But when you build marketing materials, you've got to think about when will the consumer see it, right? Like I wouldn't put a print ad on TV. I just wouldn't. That would be stupid, right? Right. So why would I think that I could took a TV ad and put it on a mobile uh, Facebook thing, right? So you've got to think about um, all those audiences. And so part of it, especially when we think about efficiency, uh, I saw this trend at J&J. So many more people are consuming, especially with Facebook and even with Google, Instagram, all those things. They're doing it on their phone. They are not doing it on their laptop, right? And so. Uh, when we buy media, we prioritize mobile in certain campaigns, again, partly because of budget, but partly because I think it's the more effective. We are serving more mobile ads first. And then that goes back to like, OK, what are we creating? Right? And so, you know, when we think about the way we're redeveloping our website, well, it's mobile first, obviously, because it's like, how is someone going to experience this here on their on their phone? And that habit that we all have of scrolling. Any app you open now, almost, you immediately start to scroll, right? And so how are we telling that story and unveiling that story? Instead of a lot of information on the landing page, sort of above the fold type of thing, you're trying to draw people through so that they can learn more as they're sort of reflexive, through reflex, 
scrolling through the page. If you look at our Instagram, uh, the Soapbox Instagram gallery, what we've done there is it used to be we have an interesting challenge and opportunity in that we want to share both um, mission uh, aid photos as well as product photos. And so uh, prior to the beginning of this year, it looked like sort of a jumbled mess of a lot of different things. And so we needed some sort of strategy to put it together. And this idea that someone could go to the gallery and scroll down those images, if you look at it, every three posts makes it line up in this vertical color blocking. And so um, it's like a red line, a yellow line, a blue line, whatever. And so it integrates product and aid through those sort of primary colors in a very unique look and feel. Because what we wanted to do is create interest. And if we drive people through an Instagram ad, an Instagram ad to our gallery, they're going to look down and they're going to see, oh, this is something that's interesting, you know. At the same time, you still need that isolated image to perform really well on Instagram. So you've got to think about both the one consumer interaction of a single image and the second of a gallery. And so I think that's how mobile, in my mind, impacts things is it allows you to think about taking the same insight and the same communication, but then adapting it, knowing where someone is going to view that material. And so viewing mobile Facebook is different than viewing your desktop Facebook. Same with Instagram, etc. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I just kind of want to highlight some of the things that you're talking about as far as your approach. And even just starting with something you called out above the fold, which is a really commonly used term for marketing, right? But you're very intentional about keeping things below the fold in, in a lot of these cases so that you're just not, when they come to the landing page, they just have all the information right there. You more want to take them on a journey filled with these surprise and delights and even the Easter egg kind of uh, strategy with the the codes. Um, that's really cool. A really cool strategy. I just wanted to highlight. Thanks. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that it's as much as digital is taking a, a bigger role, the brands that get it and the brands that do well, I think, and the products that do well are still insight driven and are still just trying to understand how is the consumer going to see this? Because in the same way that old TV ads were a great story because someone was sitting there to watch a TV ad, but they got your attention immediately and you're like, oh, I'm paying attention now. And sort of, oh, you've set up a problem. I need you to solve that problem. Oh, you've solved that problem. Yay, I'm going to go buy your thing. Right? Yeah, like, right? That's what an old TV ad used to do, have this nice arc. Well, that's changed in mobile because there's we're inundated with media and advertising You've got to hook them with something that's interesting right away, but then you can't lose them because of the fact that you've got to sort of pull them along and create an interesting story that they want to keep watching. It's the same idea. It's just different media through which you're doing it. So, Billy, if we want to keep tabs on what's happening with uh, Soapbox, where do we go? Uh, so go buy a product first and then enter your hope code, and that's how you can keep it. <laughs> that's one of the ways to keep tabs. Yeah. Our Instagram uh, feed is another key component. And then, yeah, I think you, you we will see a big evolution of Soapbox in the next couple of months. Obviously, packaging changes take some, some time. But come June, uh, June and July, our website will look totally different. And we will have uh, new branding that I think really honors our product and our bottle and honors the mission that we serve. Uh, and it's something that consumers will be proud to put in their home and, and let into their home. And then, like I said, if with the, 
through the Hope Code experience, that's where we sort of keep tabs on people and, and can share more about where we're headed and what we're doing. Um, and then the, the second piece, if you're into some just general entertainment, it's, uh, it's sort of Instagram. So to actually go along and be told a story and, and actually experience the journey, right? Go buy that soapbox yeah. soap. Um, and I'll link to all these in the show notes as well. So the Instagram, also the website, soapboxsoaps.com, so that you guys can all go check this out. And also make sure to tune in this Friday for a rapid fire round where Billy's going to be sharing some of his most valuable resources. But hey, Billy, thanks for uh, taking the time to join us today and, and walk us through what you have going on at Soapbox and, and your journey and share some resources with it. We, we really appreciate it. Of course. Thanks for Thanks again for having me. Hey, thank you for listening. Make sure to tune in this Friday for this week's guest resources from our rapid fire question round. And I'm always happy to be a resource in any way that I can. So visit emergemobilefirst.com to reach out to me directly or for additional insights, resources, and bonus tools that can help catapult your organization to the next level. Until next time, think mobile first. Mobile first.